This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Due to the graphic nature of this week's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual situations, abuse, and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Fred was glad to have the distraction of his classroom. This was the place he felt at home, in front of his students, teaching them the tenets of communication, a field he was an expert in. His time behind the lectern was the reprieve he needed from the uncertain chaos happening in his home life. He looked out at the sea of undergraduate faces and continued to speak, saying, Potentially, the most important thing to understand in relationships is that you will never be able to control the actions of others. All you can do is realize the effects of your own actions and be willing to adjust as necessary. Fred didn't understand what happened to his wife, Piper. He certainly couldn't control her actions. For the last two months, she'd acted in ways he never would have believed possible. She'd sabotaged their family Christmas in Disney World, stolen one of his credit cards and maxed it out, adding to an already daunting amount of debt, threatening their children's college funds. Why would a mother do such things? It was a question he couldn't wrap his mind around. Instead, he focused on his lecture saying, yin and yang, order and chaos, reason and passion. The and is the most important part, the connection, the duality, the dance. Fred stopped short when two police officers opened the door and approached the lectern. His heart beat faster, immediately worried for his three children. Had something happened to them? But his concern quickly shifted to anger when the police presented him with a warrant for his arrest. His wife had accused him of abusing her. He needed to come with them. As the police escorted Fred out of his classroom, his last bastion of security now ruined, he asked himself again, Why would a mother do such things? 
Hi, I'm Lainey, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a murder that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore passionate crimes. How does a marriage progress from husband and wife to killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we are doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. To friends and neighbors, Frederick Jablin and Piper Roundtree were the epitome of the adage, opposites attract. Fred was a college professor and logical to a fault, while Piper was a soulful, nurturing, free spirit. But after 20 years of marriage and three kids, their relationship soured in 2001, leading to a nasty, protracted divorce. Both sides demanded custody of their children, trying every tactic possible to get their way, eventually escalating to violence. This week, we'll explore Fred and Piper's marriage, tracking how their relationship changed and what drove them apart. Next week, we'll follow the aftermath of a murder, the investigation, and trial. Fred and Piper first met at the University of Texas in Austin in the fall of 1981. Piper, 21 at the time, was in her senior year, dual majoring in communication and German. Fred, 29, was a professor in the communications department. At the time, he was writing the success of a pioneering article he wrote for the developing field of organizational communication. By December of 1981, the relationship had progressed so quickly that Piper moved into Fred's house. Soon, they had a menagerie of animals for Piper to tend to, including a cat, rabbit, ferret, and bird. It pushed the orderly Fred out of his comfort zone, as the animals required maintenance and Piper was more interested in playing with the pets than cleaning up after them. But he was happy to have Piper in his life and devoted himself to the relationship. Author Catherine Casey covered the relationship between Fred Javelin and Piper Roundtree in her book, Die, my love. According to Casey, Margaret Surratt, who worked at UT with Fred, said of the couple, I think he sometimes looked at Piper and pinched himself. Sometimes he thought that she was too good for him, that she was so beautiful and he was lucky to have her. Before we further examine the dynamics of the relationship, please note that I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for this show. Sociologist Willard Waller examined the power dynamics of relationships in which the feelings of the participants were mismatched. According to Waller, the partner who appeared less interested in the relationship, less engaged in the outcome, held more power. He referred to this as the principle of least interest. This theory may explain the great lengths that Fred, feeling like he was the less desired partner, went to in maintaining his relationship with Piper. After graduating from UT in the spring of 1982, 
22-year-old Piper moved to Germany for a year-long scholarship program. While she was overseas, Fred learned that she had started a fling with a fellow student. Determined to keep Piper in his life, he flew to Germany to prove his love face-to-face. He was successful. When Piper returned in the spring of 1983, she moved back into Fred's house in Austin. Then, on October 13, 1983... Fred, now 31, and Piper, 23, were married in a small ceremony in their living room, surrounded by family and a few friends. But the imbalance in their relationship continued. When Piper moved to San Antonio for law school later that year, she struggled living by herself and her grades suffered. Fred dutifully rented out his Austin house and relocated with her, spending the next two years driving the 80 miles to Austin each day to continue teaching his students at UT. Laura Maldonado, who worked with Fred during that time, said of their dynamic, In Fred's mind, everything was about Piper. He waited on her hand and foot. Maybe that's what he had to do to keep them together because Piper was the kind of woman who was going to do what she wanted to do, and nobody was going to stand in her way. A few years after Piper earned her law degree, they started trying for a family. Jocelyn Jablin Roundtree was born in July of 1989. Fred was over the moon, so proud of his little family that he brought in the home movie of Jocelyn's birth to show his UT colleagues. But motherhood brought struggles for Piper, Margaret Surratt remembered Piper calling Fred's office line as many as 10 times a day after the baby was born, more often than not on a rampage, screaming into the receiver before hanging up. A second child, Paxton, followed in March of 1992. In the weeks after giving birth, 32-year-old Piper became depressed, spending most days in bed, only getting up to feed or change the baby. It's likely that with both Jocelyn and Paxton, she faced postpartum depression. According to the Mayo Clinic, common symptoms include depressed mood, severe mood swings, intense irritability, and overwhelming fatigue. However, to friends and family, Piper put on a brave face, assuring everyone around her how wonderful motherhood was. She said, "'Being a mother is my personality, my thing, It's my purpose in life. It's simply what I am at my core. But despite this assertion, Piper's behavior started to surprise Fred. A few months after Paxton's birth, Piper announced plans to undergo breast implant surgery. She emptied her retirement account to help pay for the operation, as well as withdrawing over $1,000 from their joint account. Fred tried to dissuade her, Concerned about the risks, but by the time he found out her plans, the surgery was already scheduled and paid for. According to the World Health Organization, many women face body image issues after giving birth as pregnancy can drastically alter a woman's physical appearance in a relatively short period of time. Combined with the postpartum depression, Piper may have been trying to reclaim her sense of self with the surgery, but it was concerning for Fred that she made plans for major cosmetic surgery without consulting him. So they started seeing a marriage counselor. In these sessions, Piper expressed that Fred was spending too much time away from the family, only coming home at dinner time. After Paxton was born, Fred had started taking on consultant work to make ends meet, extending his work hours. 
but he agreed to set that down to spend more time at home and Piper opened an independent law practice to bring in more income. In 1993, Piper became pregnant a third time. However, late in the pregnancy, the couple discovered that the baby had a genetic abnormality and Piper was forced to undergo a medical abortion. It was devastating to both her and Fred, but Piper in particular became severely depressed. A Swedish study published in the European Journal of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Biology found that 37.5% of women who underwent second trimester abortions experienced extreme post-abortion emotional problems. It was a very dark time for the Jablins. With Piper unable to work, Fred started to look for a new teaching position with a higher salary. It was a welcome change for the family when, in 1994, Fred accepted a tenured position at the University of Richmond in Virginia. Jocelyn, who just turned five, would start school that fall, while Piper could stay at home with two-year-old Paxton. They sold the house in Austin, packed their bags, and headed east. Fred stood on the curb in front of 1515 Hearthglow Lane, looking at the impressive red-bricked house. He couldn't believe they'd found something in their price range even larger than what they'd left behind in Texas, the place where everything was reportedly bigger. When he'd made the joke to Piper, she'd countered with her own proposition, they'd better get busy filling up those extra bedrooms. It was the first time she'd talked about having more kids since losing the baby. First time making a joke for that matter. He treasured it. Piper had been happy once, and Fred was determined to help her find that again. He thought about the Piper who nursed the baby bird in their yard back to health, the Piper who hired a man dressed as a stork to announce her first pregnancy to him, the Piper who taught him to suck the marrow out of every day. He watched his wife chase Jocelyn and Paxton around the huge front yard, listening to their trills of excitement and mock terror. She made claws with her hands and roared as she hopped around the yard. It was the happiest he'd seen her in months. This was going to work. He could feel it. At first, their time in Virginia was positive. Piper described their life by saying, I was mostly an at-home mom. I was dedicated to the children doing everything that I could for them. I cooked everything, I mean, absolutely from scratch. I canned and went berry hunting. My neighbor referred to me as the Martha Stewart of motherhood. Piper baked fresh bread and made her own dog treats for the family pooch. She shared her artistic personality with her children, teaching them how to paint and creating a mural of a Disney castle in the children's bedroom. They quickly filled the house with a variety of rescued animals. When it was her turn to read at the elementary school, Piper arrived dressed in a powder blue Alice in Wonderland costume. But her Richmond neighbors painted a different picture behind closed doors that Piper was only interested in being a mother when it was fun. She loved to play and create with her children, but rarely fulfilled the difficult responsibilities of raising them. According to Die My Love, she joined a high-priced racket club because they offered daycare services as part of the membership. However, while the club policy stipulated a maximum of three hours of supervision, 
Piper gained a reputation for leaving her kids there all day and disappearing from the club grounds, off doing her own thing. The Jablin's backdoor neighbor, Mel Foster, said that Piper would often bring the kids to her house, looking for a break. Mel eventually started pulling her car into the garage and leaving her blinds closed when she was home. Otherwise, once Piper saw Mel, she'd inevitably towed the children over. Yet Piper and Fred continued to try for more children. Piper had come from a big family, the youngest of five, and wanted the same noisy household for her own kids. So in December of 1995, they welcomed another daughter, Callan Roundtree Jablin, Callie for short. Once again, 35-year-old Piper suffered postpartum depression symptoms. At the time, this type of depression was not understood very well and therefore underdiagnosed and undertreated across the board. Doctors wrote off Piper's emotions as baby blues that would clear up in a few weeks. According to a study by JAMA Psychiatry, women with postpartum depression are more likely to have chronic depression for around 11 years after the baby is born. At times, Piper became so depressed, she locked the children, Jocelyn, now six, and Paxton, three, out of the house to hide in bed. To try to help her with her low mood, Fred hired nannies and housekeepers to look after things when Piper couldn't find the strength. The Jablins became known for their high turnover rate of household staff. Piper would hire anyone even remotely qualified, and some would only last a few days. But Fred held his tongue. If this was what Piper needed, he was willing to provide it, loyal as always to his wife. The Jablins also returned to couples therapy after Callie was born. Piper felt like she had no say in her own life. Everything she did was either for Fred or the children, and she felt powerless. The therapist suggested that it might help Piper for her to have more of a say in the household. Therefore, Fred turned over the financial responsibilities to his wife. He withheld $800 from each paycheck to cover certain fixed expenses, leaving the rest for Piper to manage as she saw fit. The therapist also suggested that Piper schedule individual sessions with her own doctor to manage her bouts of depression. Piper began seeing Dr. Stephen Welton in early 1999. But rather than discussing her low moods, much of their early sessions were spent dissecting the state of the Javelin marriage. According to Die My Love, Piper described the relationship as faltering and confessed that she had started an affair with a younger man she met at the racket club. She also divulged that she drank wine daily. Welton diagnosed Piper with attention deficit disorder, depression, alcohol abuse, and a mood disorder. He prescribed her Adderall and Prozac to address these issues, which seemed to improve her outlook over the next few months. She reported in March that she'd ended the relationship with the younger man, allowing her to focus more on her marriage. However, by the summer of 1999, the Jablin household was in turmoil again. When Fred tried to buy a new car, the dealership ran a credit check on him. Through this report, he discovered that after Piper assumed control of the family's financials less than two years prior, she had accrued over $30,000 in credit card debt. It was the last straw. We'll see Fred's ultimatum after this. 
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Now back to the story. In the summer of 1999, Fred Jablin was shocked to discover that his wife, Piper Roundtree had saddled the family with over $30,000 worth of credit card debt. Fred felt like he'd given her everything she'd ever asked for, hiring nannies and housekeepers to care for the house and children, while Piper spent her days playing tennis, drinking wine, and socializing. He had made her happiness his priority, but this reckless amount of debt made him put his foot down. He resumed control of the family finances and confiscated all of Piper's credit cards except for one, with a $500 limit. He told Piper she could either let go of the household staff, relinquish the racket club membership, and assume the responsibilities of the housework and childcare, or she could get a job and help Fred pay off the bills. Piper chose the latter. Fred learned of an attorney in Richmond who was retiring and looking for someone to take over his law practice. He thought this would be the perfect opportunity for his wife to rejoin the workforce. But while Piper was licensed to practice law in Texas, she had never transferred her certification to Virginia. She had the opportunity to do so within the first two years of moving, but was now past the grace period. It meant that she would have to take the bar exam again. Fred paid for a law review course at the university and hired extra help in the house so that Piper could give her undivided focus to studying. But according to Dime My Love, Piper didn't take her preparations very seriously. Back in Texas, she'd worked in the district attorney's office and afterward at a corporate firm. She thought passing the bar again would be a breeze. Allegedly, she spent most review sessions in the back of the classroom, sketching in her drawing pad. Unsurprisingly, when the exam results were released in March of 2000, Piper had failed. In her therapist session notes from that time, Dr. Welton was frustrated when Piper blamed everyone around her for her lack of success. She alleged that in the weeks preceding the exam, her cat had died, Callie had problems at her daycare, and she'd had to replace one of the housekeepers after they quit without notice. She claimed she was on an emotional roller coaster and described to Welton an incident in which she'd become so overwhelmed she'd gone to the emergency room. Welton diagnosed her description of the event as a panic attack and wrote her a Xanax prescription. A cloud continued to follow Piper that spring. In May of 2000, After discovering she had ovarian cysts, Piper had a hysterectomy. 
The surgery was hard on her, both physically and emotionally, renewing her depression. In addition to the practicalities of recovering from major surgery, she had a hard time accepting that she wouldn't be able to have any more children. Pregnancy and menstruation are both key aspects of femininity to many people. According to the Cleveland Clinic, some women find it difficult to process the loss of both of these womanly concepts in one surgery. As a result, Piper retreated in on herself that summer, turning to her art and spending most of her time painting and sleeping. Fred handled the duties of the household, allowing her time to heal. By September, Dr. Welton was concerned by her increased use of her anxiety medications. He noted, Piper is using more Xanax. Need to get a handle on this. In November of 2000, Piper decided to visit her family in Texas for Thanksgiving while Fred took the kids to his brother's house. The Roundtrees were an incredibly close-knit family. Piper's father was in the military, and as a result, the family moved several times during her childhood. It had bonded the Roundtrees to each other and made it hard for Piper to leave them behind when they moved to Virginia. She was close to her older sister Tina in particular. Friends and neighbors remarked on how renewed Piper appeared whenever she returned from yearly family reunions in Texas. However, this time when she returned from her visit, she was sad and homesick. According to Die My Love, Piper told Mel Foster that she decided it was time to move back to Texas. Mel tried to dissuade her. Didn't she want to stay with her children? Piper replied, I'm going to take the children with me. I was so much happier in Texas with my family than I am here with Fred. Mel tried to point out the flaws in that plan, but Piper was determined, seeing no reason to stay with Fred at all anymore. She allegedly informed the three Javelin Roundtree children that they would all be moving back to Texas without even discussing it with their dad first. Then, in late December of 2000, a few days before the Javelins were supposed to travel to Disney World for Christmas, Piper had an episode. She asked a neighbor, Linda Purcell, if she could borrow her car one morning to run a few errands. But as the morning turned into the afternoon and Piper still hadn't returned, Linda became concerned. She called Piper on her cell phone, asking where she was. Piper calmly replied that she didn't know and hung up. A few hours after that, Mel Foster got a phone call from Piper. She was at a doctor's office and needed help getting home because she couldn't drive. When Mel arrived, Piper was out of it, barely able to keep her eyes open. The nurse said that they had given Piper a sedative as she had been very agitated. They helped Piper get into Mel's car and she fell asleep during the drive. When they reached the Javelin house, Mel and her husband had to carry Piper inside and upstairs to her bedroom. Mel remembered how the children reacted to seeing their mom in this heavily medicated state. She said, I had the impression they'd seen Piper like this before. They weren't surprised. That night, once Piper recovered, she summoned the neighbor whose car she had borrowed, Linda Purcell. Piper had no memory of what had transpired that day and wanted Linda to fill in the gaps. But Linda had very few answers to give. Outside of Piper picking up the car and the phone call when she didn't know where she was, 
Piper started to pace in the living room, getting more and more worked up. Then she accused Fred of drugging her. He must have slipped something to her and it knocked her out. According to Die My Love, Linda thought Piper's behavior that night was manic. She remarked to her husband afterward, I'm truly frightened of Piper. She's slipping over the edge. The next morning, Fred Jablin would understand just how close to the precipice his wife truly was. When he woke up, Piper and five-year-old Callie were gone from their beds. He frantically called around, trying to locate them. Eventually, he discovered that Piper and Callie had flown to Houston, Texas, where her older sister, Tina Roundtree, lived. Apparently, Piper had called Tina in the middle of the night and shared the same fear she'd shared with Linda Purcell, accusing Fred of drugging her. Tina told her that if she didn't feel safe, she should come to Texas. Piper packed a suitcase and boarded the first flight of the morning with her youngest daughter. Tina reported that Piper was completely defeated when she arrived on her doorstep. She said, she was so dependent on Fred. By his design, she couldn't do anything. I worked with her, told her she was strong and independent, that she needed to get out of this situation. Before long, the old Piper returned, the spunky Piper. Fred was undermining her self-esteem. Fred was at a loss, not sure what to do about his wife's departure. He decided to follow through on the planned Disney World vacation with Jocelyn and Paxton. They had been looking forward to it for months and it didn't seem fair to keep them from having a good Christmas because of Piper's actions. Though their mother's absence was still the elephant in the room throughout the trip, Fred had a hard time explaining to the children why Piper wasn't there. After spending a week with Mickey Mouse, Fred, Paxton, and Jocelyn all flew to Houston to retrieve Piper and Callie. Fred begged his wife to come home, to reunite their family, he just wanted them to be happy and together, whatever it took. After a few days' discussion, Piper agreed to return to Virginia if Fred agreed he would start looking for a teaching job in Texas. But they were home for less than a week before Piper packed another bag. On January 6, 2001, Piper moved out of the house at 1515 Hearthglow Lane, Piper's best friend in the neighborhood, Lonnie Elwell, was also going through a divorce and therefore had space in her house for Piper to move in. Fred kept the children during the week, letting them stay with Piper on the weekends. A few nights a week, Piper would visit Fred and the kids for dinner. Fred was still holding on to hope that Piper had meant what she said in Texas. If they both made a few changes, their marriage would come out the other side. He wanted them to be a family, above all else. But by January 11th, Fred realized that Piper had other plans. As Fred walked to the door to answer it, he tried to guess who might be on the other side. It was late. That ruled out any visits from the kid's friends. But as he approached the window, he realized the blue and red lights of a cop car were swirling on the curb. Sure enough, when he opened the door, he was greeted by two uniformed officers. Surprised, Fred let them inside. 
It was then that Piper came sweeping into the room. She was very upset and crying. Thank God you're here, she told the officers. Through tears, she accused Fred of shoving her into a wall and screaming at her. Make him leave, she pleaded, before he hurts me again. Fred could barely keep his mouth from hanging open. Flabbergasted, he tried to assure the officers that he had done no such thing to his wife. But Piper persisted, showing an officer a cut on her hand. He scrutinized it. He thought it looked healed and scabbed over. Are you sure this happened tonight? The officer questioned. She conceded. Perhaps the cut had come from something else, but she adamantly maintained that Fred had been abusive. By that point, Paxton and Jocelyn had come out from their bedrooms, drawn to the lights and noise. Fred hated what they were seeing. How would they understand this? One of the officers motioned for Jocelyn to come down the stairs and give her side of the story. Did you see your mommy and daddy fight, he asked her. Fred felt his chest tighten as he watched his 11-year-old adjust her glasses and shake her head. It was just too surreal. His daughter providing his alibi against his wife. Despite Piper's insistence, the police believed Fred and Jocelyn's account of the evening and left the house without taking any action. But Fred still wasn't ready to accept that this chain of events was leading to the end of his marriage. According to Die My Love, a week after Piper called the police, alleging that he was abusing her, Fred wrote her an email. The subject line read, Everything. He wrote, First, despite all that's happened, I still care very much about you. A candle of love still remains burning, although it appears on a trajectory to burn out. Second, I miss you. Third, it is clear we have both failed one another in many respects. I guess I am looking for a miracle. But miracles do happen, especially if people want them to happen. My heart and soul keep reminding me not to forget this, and I hope yours do as well. Fred begged Piper to work with him to keep their family together. He agreed to continue searching for a new job in Texas. Even if he couldn't find a new position by the summer, he would take a leave of absence from his post in Richmond, and they would move back to Austin together. He urged her to return home, offering to sleep in one of the guest rooms while she stayed in their master suite. He also asked her to resume their marriage counseling sessions. After all that Piper had put him through in the last year, Fred still wasn't ready to walk away from his nearly two-decade-long marriage. Sex therapist Sari Cooper posited, I see clients who stay in relationships because they're worried they won't find another partner, while others remain because they don't want to deprive their children from having the other parent in their day-to-day -day life. But the simple truth may have been that Fred still cared deeply for Piper, he signed the email, Love Always, Fred. On January 31, 2001, police were once again summoned to 1515 Hearthglow Lane. But this time, it was Fred who made the call. When the officers arrived, 
Fred told them that Piper was acting erratically. She's trying to take my kids away, he said. Piper claimed that she was trying to move out of the house and was going to take the children with her, but Fred had locked them in an upstairs bedroom. The police managed to quell the situation. Their report noted that the couple agreed to separate for the evening and discuss the situation again in the morning. Less than a week later, the situation further deteriorated. Fred had taken away Piper's credit cards over a year ago after discovering she'd accumulated over $30,000 in debt. But in early February 2001, he received statements in the mail for two cards in his name that she gained access to without his knowledge. The bills totaled almost $20,000. Fred was furious. The day after this discovery, Piper checked into a hotel with the children and stayed there with them for the better part of a week. She called Mel Foster in a panic, terrified that Fred was going to have her arrested. When he found out about the credit cards, he threatened to press fraud charges. Perhaps as a preemptive strike, Piper went to the Richmond Police Department to file a report herself. She gave a sworn affidavit, alleging that she was the victim of domestic abuse. In it, she referred to the night of January 11th, when the police had come to the house, repeating that Fred had shoved her into a wall and screamed at her. The police issued a warrant for Fred's arrest and put a restraining order in place. That afternoon, police officers entered Fred's lecture hall at the university, presented him with a warrant, and escorted him off campus for questioning. He was stunned and humiliated. As long as the restraining order was in place, he wasn't allowed to go home. He had to enlist the help of a neighbor to retrieve a suitcase of clothes and then checked into a nearby hotel. Piper and the children moved back into the house. At a loss and concerned for the well-being of his kids under Piper's supervision, Fred filed for an emergency custody hearing on March 11, 2001. According to Die My Love, Fred wasn't able to trust Piper any longer. A friend said, Fred saw Piper as irrational and too distracted to be responsible for the children. He saw the credit card bills as a violation of trust and feared she'd run off with the children and simply disappear. The judge awarded Fred temporary custody of 11-year-old Jocelyn, 9-year-old Paxton, and 5-year-old Callie. Piper retaliated by filing another domestic abuse charge. While Fred was in police custody, Piper hired movers and officially relocated to a townhouse a 15-minute drive away. Fred alleged that along with the bedroom and living room furniture, she took his mother's piano, pearls, and wedding ring. Less than a week later, on March 16th, Fred filed for a divorce. In the paperwork, he said, he saw no possibility of reconciliation. We'll see the fallout of the divorce proceedings after this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Now back to the story. After nearly two decades of marriage, 49-year-old Fred Jablin and 41-year-old Piper Roundtree were headed for divorce in March of 2001. Though Fred had been temporarily granted custody of their three children, Piper fought the ruling. She said, I was born to be a mother. It was in my blood. He had no right to take my children from me. Absolutely no right. Up to this point, Fred had been reluctant about the separation. He was reticent to break up the family, concerned about the effects on the children. However, research has shown that long-term exposure to a toxic relationship between parents can actually be more detrimental to the children's mental health than living in a divorced household. Psychotherapist Sean Grover, who specializes in family therapy, wrote, Kids forced to endure loveless marriages and to tolerate emotional tension day after day, bear the full brunt of their parents' dysfunctional relationship. They intuitively feel their parents' unhappiness and sense their coldness and lack of intimacy. In many cases, children blame themselves, feeling their parents' combative relationship is somehow their fault. Perhaps it was for the best then, when in June of 2001, Fred discovered truths about Piper that finally convinced him to permanently take reconciliation off the table. Fred had previously suspected Piper was having an affair. There were times in the months leading up to the separation when she disappeared for hours. Once, she'd asked him if she could rent an apartment. She wanted privacy to paint. But that reasoning didn't ring true, as Piper already had a home studio. Fred hadn't pushed the conversation then, perhaps unwilling to accept the possibility of what she had truly wanted the private space for. But now, there was no denying it. Piper started openly dating Jocelyn Roundtree Jablin's ophthalmologist. According to Die My Love, she introduced him to friends and neighbors as the one. Apparently, the relationship had started the past November when Jocelyn needed surgery. Oddly enough, the doctor struck a similar resemblance to Fred. He was a thin, balding man with a slight build from a Jewish family. Fred said to Mel Foster, Piper left me for a man who looks enough like me to be my brother. Why would she do that? When Fred heard that Piper and her boyfriend had taken a few trips together to high-priced resorts in the spring of 2001, he was heartbroken. When he learned that Piper had brought their children along on several dates with the doctor 
and was openly affectionate with him in front of the kids, Fred was livid. On July 18th, he petitioned for permanent sole custody of the children. Fred said he didn't want to cut his children's mother out of their life completely, telling the judge, I value the time my wife spends with my children. I have a tremendous amount of compassion for my wife, and I know that she loves my children very much. But he confessed that he was afraid every time he left the children alone with Piper and was completely bewildered by the dramatic changes in her behavior. His greatest fear was that she would one day grow so depressed or desperate that she would do something to harm herself and, unable to leave them behind, the children as well. After reviewing the information, the judge ordered a psychiatric evaluation for both parents to help determine the best course of action. A court-appointed psychiatrist presented their evaluation of the couple on January 7, 2002, nine months after the original divorce filing. Dr. Lee Hagen diagnosed Piper with ADD, substance abuse, and impaired judgment. He also speculated that she might struggle with bipolar disorder. Hagen testified that Piper's test scores indicated she might have difficulties with personal responsibility, shifting blame on others, and being quick to anger when she didn't get her way. Fred's scores, on the other hand, showed a personality that was more mellow. When faced with challenges, he tended to be more prudent and rely on diplomacy. Dr. Sherman Master, a court-appointed psychiatrist, also testified. He agreed with Hagen's assessment. Master also laid some of the blame for the dysfunction in the Jablin household at Fred's feet, saying, it takes two to tango. In the end, the judge sided with Fred. Fred was granted permanent physical custody of 13-year-old Jocelyn, 10-year-old Paxton, and 6-year-old Callie. Piper would have visitation rights, but the children would live with Fred. According to Die My Love, Piper was devastated by the decision. On May 8th, she fired back. In the course of the divorce proceedings, Piper's sister, Tina Roundtree, had drawn up a 42-page report on Fred Jablin's mental health. Tina was a certified nurse and ran a women's clinic, but had no training or authorization as a mental health professional. She wrote in the document that she held an honorary position as a professor at UT for her expertise in pediatrics and women's health issues, but no record of such a position exists. And indeed, the report was less a medical assessment and more a character assassination. Tina wrote that Fred was a narcissist who cared nothing for Piper or the children, accusing him of emotional and verbal abuse. She claimed that Fred had a calculated pattern of neglect, regularly smoked marijuana, and had both physically and sexually assaulted Piper many times during their marriage, among other things. She wrote that she was terrified what the effect of his parenting would have on the children, claiming that Fred had beaten Paxton and that Jocelyn had developed anorexia due to Fred's unrealistic expectations. Three days after the custody ruling, Piper emailed Tina's assessment to several friends and family. She prefaced the attachment with, after serious consideration of the wider implications of the attached court report, I am forwarding it to you. The subject line read, 
relevant if you have children he supervises. Fred had received plenty of Piper's forwarded emails during the course of the divorce. She'd sent messages to her entire address book that summer, some discussing her communication with a guardian angel and some expressing her deep sadness over being away from her children. Friends who took Fred's side in the separation had passed them along, keeping him in the loop, which he appreciated. Nothing could have prepared him for the message he opened that morning. It was another forward from Piper, sent by Mel Foster. She apologized to him for sending it, but felt like he needed to know. Fred clicked on the attachment, a file labeled Jablin Psychological Profile. This ought to be good, he thought. He could barely comprehend what he was reading. The sham report was broken up with headlines like Suicide and Dr. Jablin's Psychological Manipulation of His Children. Fred frantically tried to determine who had received the message, but it had been sent through a blind copy. His panic mounting, he called Mel. Did she know who else got this message? She told him that she'd heard from a few moms in the Boy Scout troop already. She tried to reassure him. Everyone knew Piper was crazy. No one would believe this. Fred hung up, completely defeated. When the judge awarded him custody, he thought the battle was over. He'd done what he had to do to protect his children and succeeded. But once again, Piper had managed to draw him back in for another round. He picked up the phone again and called his attorney. He was ending this once and for all. A week later, on May 13th, Fred was back in front of a judge, asking for another emergency custody hearing. He wanted Piper's visitations reduced, sending that email proved she was unstable. Piper claimed in her testimony that she was only doing what was best for the children. When the judge argued that sending Tina's libelous report had been damaging to them, Piper repeated, I have been terrified for myself and for the sake of the children. My concern is the welfare of the children. It took two months, but on July 15th, the judge granted two motions. First, Piper and Fred were now, finally, officially divorced. Second, Piper would have fewer visitation rights. Moving forward, she would see the children two weekends a month, on holidays, and for three weeks during the summer. This decision rocked Piper to the core. She saw herself as the embodiment of motherhood, something she was born to do and excelled at. Without her children, her identity was ripped away. As Dr. Edward Crook, author of Co-Parenting After Divorce, wrote, parents who were highly involved with and attached to their children and suddenly found themselves forcefully removed from their children's lives, experienced profound woundedness. The experience of being removed as a loving parent from the life of one's child via a sole custody order strikes at the heart of one's being. Shortly after the custody arrangement was amended, Piper told a close friend, Fred torched my village. By August of 2002, Piper was out of money and generally defeated. Now that Fred had sole custody of the children, 
he was no longer required to send her money for child support. She had worked a few jobs in fits and spurts, but none had lasted long. Piper packed up her house, loaded her possessions into her car, and drove to Houston to move in with her sister, Tina. According to Die My Love, Fred was troubled by the move for a few reasons. First, Piper hadn't given him any notice of her plans to relocate. How they would arrange her visitations with the children was now in limbo. In addition, he worried about the effect Tina would have on Piper. Tina, eight years older than Piper, had a very strong influence over her sister. Those familiar with their relationship agreed that whatever Tina said, Piper did. And Tina thought Fred was cruel, evil, and manipulative. A friend of the sister said, Tina absolutely hated Fred's guts. She held him in complete contempt. Her family hated him too. It was a huge topic of conversation. Everyone was talking about how Fred had screwed Piper. Drug addicts lose their kids, not good moms like Piper. Another blow came in September of 2002. With the divorce official and the custody arrangement decided, the court now had to divide Fred and Piper's assets. Fred's lawyer argued that Piper, now back in Texas, was eligible to practice law again and her potential salary should be taken into account when determining spousal support, as should the immense amount of debt that Piper accrued during their marriage. The judge ruled that Piper make monthly child support payments of almost $900. Throughout 2003, Fred and the kids settled into a new routine at 1515 Hearthglow Lane. Fred became the cheerleader on the sidelines of the soccer field, the packer of lunches, and the organizer of sleepovers and playdates. A neighbor said, with Piper in Texas, it was like they were emerging from a long dark night. You'd see the children in the yard with Fred, having fun and laughing. We thought they might survive without too much damage. Fred kept Piper abreast of the daily nuts and bolts of the children's lives, writing emails describing the children's various activities, grades, and accomplishments. He emailed her a photo of Jocelyn's huge smile on the day her braces were removed. Piper described the long-distance relationship by saying, I was mom on the phone every single day, helping them through homework, helping them resolve fights. You know, can I go over to somebody's house? They would call me, especially my son. We talked to each other almost every night just to hear each other breathe on the phone. However, by the end of 2003, Piper owed Fred almost $10,000 in overdue child support. She eventually filed for bankruptcy but Fred blocked the motion. Because the federal bankruptcy case superseded their still ongoing asset division case, he worried that it would delay the settlement and he was desperate for their lengthy divorce process to be over. Despite the financial difficulty, it did seem like Piper found her footing in Houston. She spent a few months working as a guardian ad litem, then took another position as a land surveyor. It allowed her to set her own hours, and she liked being able to work outside. She moved out of Tina's house and into her own place. She also started a new relationship with an older gentleman, an oil man from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. In the summer of 2004, 
52-year-old Fred found a new relationship as well with a woman named Charlene. She was a single mom who lived in the next town over, or it eventually reached Piper in Texas. A friend wondered what would happen, saying, Piper's children were Piper's children, and she wasn't going to share them with another woman. We all knew that. In October of 2004, Piper came to Virginia over Columbus Day weekend to spend time with the children. It was the weekend of 15-year-old Jocelyn's homecoming dance and 12-year-old Paxton's junior cotillion, but Fred agreed to let Piper take the kids to Washington State Park for a camping trip. In Die, My Love, Mel Foster remembered talking with Fred about their plans. She told him, I don't know why Piper can't do what other moms do. Take Joss to get her hair and nails done. Let her go to the dance and be happy for her. Fred just shrugged and smiled. Piper just wasn't like other mothers. But he wasn't going to stand in the way of her relationship with the children. Mel said that Fred felt like they'd finally found some peace. Piper had a steady job. The children were happy. It was all he could really ask for. A few weeks after the camping trip on Saturday, October 30th, Fred woke up with his alarm at 6 a.m., just as he did every morning. He laid in bed and thought about the different plans and activities this hollow weekend for the children. He needed to fix the zipper on Callie's costume before they went to the hayride. Jocelyn wanted to go to her friend's house. He needed to call their mother. Fred put on his robe and slippers and padded down to the kitchen. He hit the start button on the coffee maker and pulled out the eggs from the fridge. Waiting for the coffee to brew, he stepped out the back door into the still dark morning to fetch the paper. As he leaned down to pick it up, he saw something move in the corner of his eye. Hello, Fred, he heard. Then he heard the gunshots. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of the Fred Jablin story. We'll break down the aftermath of a murder, the investigation, and trial. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is a part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Michael Langsner. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Crimes of Passion is written by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Mm-hmm.